This season, we share the stories of cyclists, rowers, triathletes, and yogis on My Body Odyssey, a show about the rewards and challenges of active lifestyle. I'm Robert Pease, and this is the second of two bonus episodes featuring our expert medical guests. I'm Valerie Wences, excited to share this more personal side from our expert guests, since in many cases, these personal experiences shape and inform their professional careers, such as Dr. Mark Stoutenberg, a kinesiologist at Temple University. Anything we do in life to the extreme, we're gonna pay the price for. If you played 15 years of basketball in your life, you're probably gonna have knee pain later in life. You know, if you played professional football, there's a good chance you're gonna suffer joint pain and replacements and different things. Dr. Stoutenberg knows firsthand about athletic injuries. Yeah, I actually started out, um, my dream when I was young was to coach football. I grew up in Canada, I came to the United States with the goal of, you know, I played college football, but I was going to be a college football or a professional coach. And and uh, I worked at the University of Miami and had the great honor of being part of some football teams there. But at the same time, I was taking classes in the discipline of exercise physiology. And I just loved it so much that I was like, I actually left my dream to start a new pathway. But Dr. Stoutenberg's college football days stayed with him in another way as he grew older that was in the form of intense back pain. I took my MRI of my low back to three different surgeons. One said, there's nothing wrong. Another said, you need you know, lumbar fusion. And the third one said, you're gonna have pain the rest of your life and there's no surgery needed. Three completely different diagnoses from the same MRI. Fortunately though, he was able to find a fairly conservative approach for his back pain. Well, I actually found a physical therapist who understood low back pain really well, was able to work with me, and I'm essentially low back pain free now. You know, and I just think back, if I had listened to the one who had said I needed surgery, I mean, he wanted to book me the next week. It would have ruined my life. Which gave him such an interesting perspective on our first protagonist, Ultimate Mark, who's young, fit, athletic, and frequently injured. Ultimate Mark competes with great intensity through those injuries in his favorite sport of Ultimate Disc, formerly known as Ultimate Frisbee, despite having had severe scoliosis and major spinal surgery at a young age. So after my freshman year of college, uh, when I was 18, I got a spinal fusion from the vertebrae T1, which is like basically the top of your back right before you hit your neck, all the way down to L3, which is like almost to the to the base of your back where your back touches your butt. And I think there's like 14 or 15 screws in there now, fully fused. You know, it was a six to eight month recovery. Being the total masochist apparently that I am, after two months, I like begged my parents to drive me to the high school track nearby. And I tried running and I went maybe 20 feet and then collapsed on the track in pain. We introduced Dr. Stoutenberg to Ultimate Mark through a series of interview clips, but he was already familiar with this dilemma from his research, his days as a football coach and player, and his own experience with back issues. You know, 18 years old, massive spinal fusion. You know, I, I just hope people at that point would say, you know what, I got to change my lifestyle. Get in the pool, do low impact exercises, find 
other ways and understand that our path in life has changed and we have to adjust to that. And it's hard to do, really hard to do. In our second episode, we profiled Iron Woman Diane, an accomplished amateur triathlete with type 1 diabetes. I've done um, three full Ironman races. My race plan consisted of like a two-page spreadsheet that was nothing but how I was going to manage my blood sugars. And to better understand the incredible challenge of completing a 12- or 13-hour Ironman competition with diabetes, we reached out to Dr. Michael Riddell from York University in Toronto. He's a leading authority on diabetes and exercise. But for Dr. Riddell, that research is also quite personal. Soon after diagnosis, I was allowed to resume playing basketball and tennis and biking, all the things that I love to do at that age, at the age of 15. But I was really having problems with low blood sugar. So I was given a pretty restrictive diet of maybe 1,500 calories a day. But actually, my energy expenditure far exceeded that because of the amount of exercise I was doing. And they never really instructed me on how to dose insulin uh, for being physically active. I didn't realize that I had to take a lot less insulin on active days and I needed to eat differently. And I got really frustrated, quite frankly, because all of my friends on the basketball team were, weren't having problems with low blood sugar or high blood sugar. That made me dig deep into the literature and then eventually take an undergraduate program in kinesiology and then a master's and, and then a PhD in physiology pharmacology, always just hungry for learning more about why Someone with type 1 diabetes has both low blood sugars and high blood sugars around exercise and nutrition. You have worked with, you know, some sprint athletes like the swimmer Gary Hall Jr. Gary Hall, he is the godfather of swimming. <laughs> so what are the challenges for someone like that preparing for just an intense burst of energy, you know, with so much on the line? Yeah, well, I had learned about Gary Hall Jr.'s experience as a sprint swimmer from a colleague of mine, Dr. Ann Peters, who is an endocrinologist. And Ann and I have worked together over the years to learn more about why these very short burst, uh, stressful competitive events cause high blood sugar. For an athlete like Gary, there is so much adrenaline that is released just before that Olympic swim or that gold medal swim in, in Sydney that he had, that the adrenaline pushes up the blood sugar. It acts on the liver to squeeze out glucose that's stored in the liver in the form of glycogen. And boy, it shoots the glucose up. His blood sugar went up over 300 milligrams per deciliter in the span of around 15 seconds during a gold medal sprint swim. And so we've learned a lot from athletes like Gary who have the complete opposite problem. They have high blood sugar when they're under intense competition. Yeah, well, do you feel like we're hearing enough about athletes with diabetes? Because honestly, I was, I had never heard that Kerry Hall Jr. was a diabetic, uh, and he's obviously a very famous swimmer. Yes. Do you think there should be more, I don't know, um, public service announcements or endorsements or whatever that bring out that fact? Yeah, I think that'd be lovely. There are so many exceptional amateur and pro athletes that I've met over the years that are so inspiring with type one, they really would do a lot for the rest of us to keep us motivated and to make us feel like we're part of a team of trying to accomplish almost the insurmountable, being in competition with this additional factor of blood sugar 
regulation. Um, it, it's certainly not easy. So there, are, I think a lot of people in the space are doing great things. The more we do, I think the better awareness we can raise. We encountered a similar bit of serendipity between protagonist and expert when we moved on from the topic of diabetes to postpartum depression. Our protagonist, Erin, a high school chemistry teacher, she took up regular running as a strategy for managing postpartum. She'd experienced a difficult pregnancy with a lot of hormonal issues and weight gain on top of the challenges of raising two young children and maintaining a full-time job. We met Erin at the finish line of her first marathon, the culmination of over a year and a half of training, including some frosty 4 a.m. winter runs in her hometown of Buffalo, New York. You know, so as hard as it can be and as much as you might struggle to get out there, at the end of it, when you're done and you have that rush of adrenaline and serotonin or whatever, um, you feel wonderful. You feel great. Like right now, I feel great. I definitely need a shower. I'm sure I'm stinky. I apologize to everybody. Um, And I definitely, you know, I'm probably going to be hurting a little bit tomorrow. But, you know, you feel like you took over the world and you feel like you did something with your day. Like, you know, it's noon-ish. And I can say I ran 26.2 miles this morning. So. One of our experts on that episode, Dr. Shosh Bennett, a clinical psychologist, She had not one but two serious cases of postpartum with her own pregnancies three decades ago that set her on a mission to help others understand and treat the issue. I had trauma from the labor and delivery, which was never addressed. It it wasn't a thing back then that was identified. And uh, really, my daughter was two and a half when I finally, when my hair started to curl again. What was left of it had gone straight, so hormonally, it took about two and a half years to come back. And I started to feel like my old self and thought, maybe I can be a mother. But, uh, you know, she and I, my baby and I, did have attachment issues. Uh, She did develop an attachment disorder, which can happen if mama is not given proper help. And that's why I do this work. Again, I've been doing this work for a good 34 years. And a lot of it has to do with making sure babies are okay as well. And if mommy is given help, that relationship is going to be fine. We asked Dr. Shosh if she'd been prescribed any help with her own cases of postpartum. No. No, I wasn't. Therapists were not trained at all. And actually, to this date, there isn't a full, comprehensive training program in graduate schools. We're getting closer, but not yet. So the therapists I went to, actually, I felt more crazy when I left their office than when I walked in. It's not their fault. They weren't trained, but they were asking me completely irrelevant types of things. Dr. Shosh also helped us understand the prevalence of postpartum and how it differs from normal mood swings. You know, the baby blues is very normal. Most new moms experience those mild ups and downs. Baby blues should be gone by about two weeks following delivery. We can differentiate the two by both the length of time it's lasting. For instance, if just a mild baby blues continues past two, I'd say at the outset, three weeks, we call it a mild postpartum depression now. And the woman does need some extra help. It can also happen immediately. 
the onset can be immediately after uh, following delivery or any time up to about the first year postpartum. But we're talking about 15 to 20 percent, about one in seven will experience something more severe than the normal baby blues. As well as the surprising fact that many mothers, Dr. Shosh included, begin to experience postpartum symptoms during pregnancy. You know, whatever can happen postpartum can happen during pregnancy. So those well checks should be happening by the OBGYN, you know, at least every trimester to make sure she's okay. And there are wonderful screening methods that we have now to help prevent. I'm all about prevention whenever possible. Again, I plummeted in 1987 with the birth of the, the second child. And about a year into that, I realized there was a name for what I had been going through. And that's what launched me, uh, still very depressed, but launched me into as much research as I could get my hands on. And I was one of the few uh, pioneers of maternal mental health in the United States. And it just blossomed from there. Serendipity struck a little differently in our episode profiling Howie, an avid cyclist. He's ridden through six bouts of lymphoma and logged something like 100,000 miles, or four times around the planet, in his decades-long love affair with cycling. Because of all the riding I do, uh, they're able to hit me harder uh, with chemo, with radiation, when they have to do it. Dr. Katherine Schmitz, a noted expert on cancer and exercise at the University of Pittsburgh, provided the commentary on Howie's odyssey. Her initial path into exercise oncology did not arise from her own experience, but then, unfortunately, cancer did creep into her personal life. I will say that my experience of the field of exercise oncology changed dramatically in 2016 when the woman who is now my wife was diagnosed with stage three squamous cell carcinoma in her right nostril and um, had to undergo what is technically called a complete rhinectomy and what you and I would call total removal of the nose and radiation and chemotherapy. My understanding of cancer and what it is to go through cancer shifted dramatically as a result of that. And that has influenced the shape of my professional endeavors since. Wow. Well, I'm sorry that you and your wife went through that. And I'm sure that's a continuing process. When you say it influenced, you mean like the patient experience part of it or how it impacts families? Yes. Yeah. I think it, it influenced, you know, prior to that, I saw the evidence base and it said, you know, people should be doing 150 minutes a week of aerobic activity and twice weekly strength training. And this is what we should do. And you should do that, you know. And after the experience of of Sarah's cancer, it was more, okay, so what are you dealing with right now? And what are you capable of doing? And more movement is better. And let's see what you can withstand. And, you know, it was less about meeting the guidelines than um, meeting people where they are, if that makes sense. In addition to the recognition that, you know, and this was really quite something for me, the caregiver goes through something too. And it was very, very difficult time for for me, um, for Sarah to go through cancer. And it was 
surprising to me how few people understood that I was dealing with something too. I gained 20 pounds. I stopped exercising. Oh, I was, wow. I mean, it, it was a dramatic change for my physical health for Sarah to go through cancer. Um, by the way, she's fine. Good. I'm glad. <laughs> Five years out, I'm fine. So most important news. But the caregiver, you know, recognizing that the caregiver is experiencing something as well, I think was brand new news to me. So it broadened or did it broaden your research? It broadened my understanding of how to talk to people. I think that it also shaped the kind of research that I thought was really important to do. So I still think that it is important to do research to understand the physiologic underpinnings by which exercise will have benefits for people living with and beyond cancer. But I think that I thought this before Sarah's cancer, and I think it really strongly now that we know enough and we need to make this happen in the lives of patients and caregivers. And so to me, it is a crucial question, crucial and central question to ask, how do we make it standard of care? How do we shift this so that people see this as being as important as their chemotherapy? Again, that's Dr. Katherine Schmitz of the University of Pittsburgh, one of several medical experts who've informed My Body Odyssey episodes from personal experience. And looking back at what seemed like coincidence, Dr. Stoutenberg having confronted a possible spinal fusion. Or Dr. Adele with type 1 diabetes becoming a world-class authority on diabetes and exercise. And Dr. Bennett, a pioneer on postpartum depression after two serious battles of her own. So maybe, Valerie, this is really not so coincidental. Personal experience can light the way toward professional expertise and makes these experts fully understand the considerable challenges involved. So you'll be hearing from more experts like these in season two of My Body Odyssey. Meantime, Happy New Year to all our listeners from the Fluent Knowledge team. We're moving into production of season two, launching late winter of 2023. So stay tuned and stay active. My Body Odyssey is a Fluent Knowledge production. Original music by Ryan Adair Rooney.